John 13, considering the text, John 13, 18 through 30 this morning. Our subject is the betrayal of Jesus by Judas Iscariot. In God's providence, we have to consider this morning the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, this evening the betrayal of Demas, of the Apostle Paul, and particularly of the gospel ministry. This is not planned by us as elders. It was foreordained before the foundation of the world by our great God, apparently. He wanted us on this Sunday to consider two examples of faithlessness. I don't know why. I've wrestled with the Lord over this. I have not wanted to preach this text. I have told the Lord that. But he wants me to. So here we are, John 13, 18 to 30. Judas Iscariot is the most despised man in all of biblical and Christian history. He is, by his name, the betrayer. When you hear the name Judas Iscariot, the first thing that comes into your mind is that he betrayed Jesus. That's not just because you're so smart. That's because that's what the scriptures tell you to think about him. Every time Judas is mentioned in the scriptures, the appellation given to him after his name is the one who betrayed Jesus. In the listing of the apostles in the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John does not give a listing of the 12 apostles, Judas Iscariot is always listed last. And it is said he is the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas, likely by his name Iscariot, grew up in a small town in Judah, was probably the only one of the 12 who was not from Galilee, therefore unknown by the rest. Likely became exposed to Jesus through the preaching of John the Baptist when he went out to hear as a devout Jew this message of the forerunner that there was a Messiah coming, be baptized and prepare yourself for the coming of the Lord. And so Judas in religious fervor went and heard and was drawn to Jesus, quickly moved from John the Baptist's disciple to Jesus' disciple, and by God's providence, according to his eternal wisdom, Known in the mysteries of his divine will alone, he chose Judas to be one of his inner twelve, his inner circle, his would-be apostles. As you work your way through the scriptures, there's no one more despised in the whole of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, outside of Satan and the Antichrist, than Judas Iscariot. There's only one man of whom it is said he was a devil, That is Judas Iscariot. There's only one other man of which it is said he was a son of perdition or a son of condemnation, and that is the Antichrist. So we're dealing with the worst of the worst. We're touching upon Satan's emissary within the inner circle of Jesus. Before we read the text, I want to remind you what's happening in the context. I won't read Verses 1 through 17, Jesus is in the final few hours of his life. He's approaching the cross in which he will give himself for the redemption of sinners like you and me. Before he heads to the cross, he finds a secret place, a quiet place to be with his men, his 12 men, his chosen apostles. This upper room of this friend's house later in Acts will become a gathering place for the believers. It will be where after Jesus dies, they go to gather as they reel through the reality of what just happened. It's where Jesus will appear to them again and show them his, his scars as he stands alive before them. In this upper room, they're celebrating on this Thursday night the Passover meal, remembering what God did in the account in Exodus to save his people from the grips of Egypt. As they remember the, the Passover and they celebrate this meal together, they're leading into some of the, the most precious teaching of our Savior to his disciples. We find things in chapters 13 to 17 that we see nowhere else in the Gospels. We, we see the heart and the mind of Jesus in a way that, that you don't get when you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not that you don't see his mind and heart there, you do, but not to the level or degree we see it in the chapters to come. But before we get there, before Jesus takes his robe off, as it were, and shows his disciple his inner man, 
He has to deal with something in the room that needs to be expunged. And that in the room is Judas himself. Remember, right before this, he has, Jesus has lowered himself to the lowest point possible as the slave of all, washed the feet of all of his apostles, including the one who was to betray him. And then he has not just given them the example, he has taught them what that means. He has told them, this is how you should now think and live. You are my servant, not my Lord. Therefore, you should do as I have done to you. You should wash one another's feet. Then he said at the end of that teaching, you remember in verse 17, blessed is he who knows these things and does them. Who knows them, understands them, and does them. Now we see in verse 18, a pivot on a dime by Jesus to talk about the, from the blessedness of the disciples who do this to the wretchedness of the betrayer. John 13 verse 18 says this, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a quote from Psalm 41, verse 9, written by David about the betrayal of Ahithophel when he went with his son Absalom. Verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and there's more in that uncertain word than what English communicates. They were distressed in their uncertainty. They were perplexed. They were stirred up. Who is he talking about? Verse 23, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. There's a rising tension in our text between Jesus and Judas. The son of light is coming to spar with the son of darkness. The king of kings is bringing into conflict the betrayal of the son of Satan. This humble savior king is opposing this pride-filled betrayer and he is shedding the light upon his plot to move it along. I want to walk you through the narrative by moving us from one act to another as a scene unfolds. If you were at the men's, Men of the Word event last night, I had this outline before Kyle did Act 1, 2, 3, and 4 from Daniel 3. Just so you know that, all right? I had this figured out, and then he stole my outline. Here we go. Act 1, the declaration, verses 18 to 21. This is the declaration of Jesus about what is true of one of his disciples. He's just been speaking about all of the disciples that are going to follow him in the blessedness of those who do what he's been modeling for them to do. And now he turns on a dime and totally pivots to the wretchedness of the traitor that is among them. He says in verse 18 that that not all of those in the room are the blessed ones of verse 17. He knows whom he has chosen. He already said that back in chapter 6. Remember that after the feeding of the 5,000? When he then teaches hard things, he says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And all of his disciples that were just the commoners left. And Jesus said, are you going to leave two to his 12? Remember Peter's response? To whom should we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You remember Jesus' response to that? Probably not. I'm going to tell you. I'll remind you. He said, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus was compelled at that moment to say in a foreshadowing way what he brings out in chapter 13. John, in his 
narrative goes on to explain in verse 71, the next verse of chapter 6, that he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. A few verses before that, seven verses before that, actually verse 64 in John 6, 64, John tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and specifically who it was who would betray him. And now in chapter 13, that knowledge gets shared with the men in the upper room. I don't have time to say this, but I need to say it a little bit. Is this an act of Jesus' omniscience in which he just knows all things? He knows who are his and who are his betrayers? You could make that argument. I, I think that, like Dr. Bookman has made so clear to us in his times with us in the past, we, we need to give more credit to the humanity of Jesus, veiling the deity of Jesus. He did not lose his deity. He did not set it aside to come back and get it later. But he did, in his humanity, veil the full and free use of his attributes, his perfections of deity, namely knowing all things. And so the, the scriptures speak of Jesus learning things. Hebrews talks about him learning obedience as a son. So there's things in his humanity that as he grew, though he was truly God and truly man, he was growing in knowledge of things. And you could make the case, and I would make the case, though I'm not going to take the time to this morning, that Jesus perceived in Judas a different spirit than the rest of the men from the beginning. He knew the scriptures. He knew Psalm 41. He knew Psalm 55, he knew Zechariah 11, he knew there would be one among them who would raise his heel against him, he knew that he, the Son of Man and the Son of God, would be the perfect fulfillment of those Old Testament texts, he knew there would be one of his twelve who would be used in the plot to bring him to the cross. And I think from his earliest interactions with Judas, he knew this man was in it for something other than faith that he Jesus was the Messiah. And as that developed, we get to the upper room and Jesus absolutely knows. He has no doubt here that this man is the one who will fulfill Psalm 41 and verse 9. Psalm 41 is written by David the king. In the later years of his kingly reign, he is betrayed by his son Absalom, whom he loves dearly. Absalom, in his betrayal, David really almost does nothing to counter that betrayal. As you read the account, And as Absalom is vying for the kingdom, Ahithophel, David's most trusted counselor, the one whom he shared bread with, which is a a Hebraism to say a very close friend. One with whom we talked about very close, intimate details of life together. One whom I sought the dearest counsel from has raised his heel against me, or literally in the Hebrew, has made his heel great against me. We don't know for sure what the idea is in the mind of the Hebrew when that is said. There's a lot of guesses. Something it's, it's the horse getting ready to, to kick up its hind legs and, and heal its owner hard to get it away from it. Something it's, it's a, a friend who, when you are, have fallen and are on the ground, instead of giving you a hand to raise you up, they raise the heel to kick you and put you further down. Whatever it is, whatever it means, it means betrayal. The the one closest to you turns on you and betrays you. And and of all the texts Jesus could have used to say, this is fulfilled by Judas, he picks this one. He could have picked Psalm 55. He could have picked Zechariah 11, which are actually clearer about the betrayal that would come. But he picks this one. And and why? Well, I surmise that because it talks about the, the feet of the betrayer. Remember what's just happened in John 13? Jesus has just humbled himself and washed the feet of this man. And now he says, this man who I have have done everything I can to serve from head to toe has raised his heel against me. This is the theme of his declaration in verses 18 to 21, this treacherous betrayal. Verse 20, he states the truth positively. He who receives me receives the one who sent me. He starts with, he who receives the one I sent receives me. Then he who receives me receives the one who sent me. He's, he's working in degrees, moving up the chain. And it, we'll see later, that's an encouragement to us as those whom he has sent. That's the positive. You receive me, you receive the one who sent me. Then verse 21, he flips the coin over, states it negatively once again. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. In other words, not all of you will receive me, like he said in verse 20. 
one of you among you will betray me. This is the truism of the moment that fans into flame the tension between Jesus and Judas. It was kind of brimming under the surface their whole relationship life. Jesus knew it was there, though he never treated him differently, though he loved him and showed him mercy constantly. It was always kind of there. By this statement, Jesus is bringing it out to the light, and he is fanning that flame into a fire. One of you will betray me. This bold declaration by Jesus is not without its trouble. Though he is using this to move along the plans of Satan, but more ultimately the plans of God, we read in verse 21 that he himself is troubled. Brother, sister, be encouraged by your Lord here. He knows how this ends. He knows the end of the story. He knows the end from the beginning. He came to this world to do this very thing. He knows that the betrayal of Judas is going to be used by the hand of God to accomplish the redemption of man. He knows that this will lead ultimately to his glory. He knows that his humility will lead to his exaltation. He knows all that. And yet, in the moment of betrayal, he is deeply troubled. It's the same word used in John 11 when he came on the scene of Lazarus' grave and he sees Lazarus' sister and the crowd mourning for Lazarus. And the text says he was deeply troubled. It's the same word here. And, and why not be troubled? This is, this is the reality of Jesus' humanity. To have this one whom he had served so well and loved so deeply, this one he had been so kind to, this one he had washed the feet of, this one who had heard all of his teaching, seen all of his miracles, this one whom he had offered forgiveness and mercy and grace to, to know that this betrayer, within a matter of hours, was going to be burning in the flames of hell forever. So much so that he will say in Mark that it would have been better for this man to never have been born. That is not a callous statement of a detached Savior. Jesus is troubled by the sinfulness of the heart of Judas. This moment is the rising tension between Jesus and Judas. Act 2, the investigation. Verses 22 to 26, the scene of the declaration gives way to the investigation. That declaration of Jesus sent shockwaves through the 12. They wonder and look at each other, stare at one another, wondering who could it be. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us what they said. John tells us what they looked at. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, they said, is it I, Lord? They all asked the question. Even Judas asked the Lord the question, is it I, Lord? Feigning his allegiance to Christ. But here in John, John makes sure to know that we know that this is a, a moment of confusion for the disciples. They, they're bewildered by this. They, they've lived with one another for two and a half plus years, and they're looking at one another saying, seriously, one of you is the traitor? Maybe even wondering, is it me? I don't think I have this in my heart, but could it be me? Well, only the true betrayer in the room has any idea of what's happening as the rest grow in deep distress. Shows you the effective religious veneer that Judas put on, doesn't it? Said all the right things, acted all the right ways, did all the right deeds wore all the right garb, had the right t-shirts at the right times, wore the right shoes to the right places. I mean, he looked the part of an apostle of Jesus Christ, so much so that the other apostles could not tell that he was not one of them. This also speaks to the nature of Jesus' relationship with Judas. Look to your Lord and learn here how kind and compassionate and loving he was from the beginning knowing from the beginning that Judas would be different than the rest, that he would betray him. Jesus did not treat him in any way that anyone else could perceive was different from the rest. 
He loved him and he mercifully interacted with him and tried to bring him along and knowing he would betray him ultimately. This obviously then puts the other 11 into a tailspin at this Passover meal. Who could it be that would betray Jesus? So John tells us of how Peter, good old Peter, can't let it rest, has to know what's going on, has to get this solved and figured out. Maybe he himself is wrestling with, is it really me? By the end of the chapter, just a few verses from now, he's going to say, Lord, I'll never betray you. I'll die with you. Remember that? So maybe he internally is wrestling with, am I going to do this? Sometimes those bold statements are us trying to convince ourselves. I wonder if that's part of what's going on with Peter and trying to figure out who is it? Namely, is it, it's not me, is it? John, figure this out. This helps if you know what's going on. I've talked about this before. Dr. Bookman talked about this when he was here. This feast in this upper room, they would have three tables shaped in a U. They'd be about knee high. You would lean to the table on your left elbow and eat with your right hand. Positioned at the table, either at the center table of the U or one of the sides, the position of honor would be the center spot of that table. That's where Jesus is. To his left would be the person of honor at the feast next to the host. That's where Judas is. We know that because of the the other gospel writers talk about Jesus leaning back and talking to Judas, saying things to him that no one else hears. Well, how does that happen unless Judas is right there? We also know that by him giving the morsel to Judas in just a minute. John, the apostle, the one who's writing this gospel account, is sitting to the right of Jesus, and we know that because he leans back and talks to Jesus and no one hears. Peter is somewhere else. We don't know where. Probably across the table. My guess is because he didn't get the seat of honor in a show of uh, feigned humility, he took the lowest spot, which would have been on the other side across from John. So he's looking at this whole thing. He hears Jesus and he looks at John and makes eye contact and nods with his head and they do a little nonverbal communication and John knows Peter wants him to ask Jesus, who is it? So John leans back on the chest of Jesus and whispers to him, who is it, Lord? Jesus answers and says, the one to whom, after dipping this morsel, I give it to him. This morsel is a piece of unleavened bread, similar to what we use for communion. Obviously a bigger piece than what we hand out to one another. But it's a piece of unleavened bread. The the dip that they used was a, a combination of vinegar, of salt water, of bitter herbs, uh, of crushed fruit, dates, figs, and raisins. It was a reminder of what they had in Egypt, of the bitterness of that experience of their slavery and the, the coming out of the Exodus. The host of the Passover meal would symbolically do this, take a, a piece of unleavened bread, dip it in that dip, and then hand it to someone they wanted to honor at the, the feast. So what's happening here by Jesus is yet another extension of honor and mercy to Judas. He, through another gesture, is is saying to Judas, the offer is still on the table for mercy. It's not too late. You don't have to be the traitor. Jesus takes that morsel of bread, dips it, gives it to Judas Iscariot. The action is interpreted by the other 11 as an action of honor. The only one who seemingly knows is John the Apostle, whom, by the way, this is the first time he says, I think in verse 23, that this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's not a statement of pride. We like to read it that way. Like, I mean, I would say that too if I was loved more than all the rest of the disciples. If I knew Jesus loved me more than you, I would tell you that all the time. It's not what this is. He can't get over how much he has been loved by Jesus. And he's doing what John the Baptist did in chapter 1. He's being a faithful witness who refuses to name himself. Remember when the the Pharisees from Jerusalem came to John the Baptist and said, Who are you? What do you say? I'm a voice. (laughs) I'm a voice. I'm one crying out in the wilderness. I'm just doing my job. I'm pointing you to one greater than me of whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie the strap. That's exactly what John the Apostle is doing in chapter 13. We'll see it again four more times in in different layers of the account as it progresses to the end of the book. He'll refer to himself as the one, the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
he apparently is the only one who knows what's going on between Jesus and Judas, but verse 28 makes it pretty clear that he still doesn't even understand it. Why does he say to Judas, go and do what you're doing quickly? He doesn't grasp all that's going on here. But as Peter and John look on, as Jesus gave that dipped piece of bread to Judas Iscariot, they see an extension of honor to Judas. Judas most certainly sees an extension of mercy from our Savior. Judas, in this moment, simply has to resist the beckonings of Satan and receive the merciful offer of our Lord. He simply, in this moment, has to turn from all his sinful maneuverings and and machinations and imaginations and manipulations and, and turn to Jesus instead of turn away from him to betray him. But Satan had taken a foothold already in Judas's life and now he easily scales the wall of Judas's heart and takes possession of Judas. The drama builds. It's now a feverish pitch. We move to the command in verse 27. Jesus commands Judas to go do what he plans to do quickly. We're told in verse 27 that when Jesus handed the morsel to Judas, that Satan entered in to Judas. Judas seemingly wanted to wait. Remember back in verse 2, we were told that that Satan had already put it into his heart to betray Jesus? Likely Satan is, is in the room around the environment, in the spiritual realm, beckoning Judas to do his bidding and do his evil work. Now as Judas commits to being the betrayer by taking from Jesus, hearing his statement, I believe, to John the Apostle, the one to whom I give this morsel is my betrayer. Judas, hearing that, receives it, accepting that role. Yes, I will be that betrayer. Yes, I am that betrayer. And Satan enters in. Judas had already made plans to betray Jesus. He had already gone to the Sanhedrin. We read about this in chapter 12. The raising of Lazarus from the dead had caused a fury among the Sanhedrin, but a stir of worship among the common people. Jesus appeared on the scene in Bethany the week before his death. That Saturday night, remember, they had a party for Jesus. Mary, the the sister of Lazarus, comes with her expensive ointment over a year's worth of wage for the common laborer. It's a, a massive amount of money comes and she breaks that and pours it out on the feet of Jesus as an act of worship. And you remember Judas in that moment, John 12, 6? Feigning to be a religious man, one who cares about the poor, says, why did we let her do this? We should have taken that, sold it, and given it to the poor. John in his gospel tells us the unmasked truth. Judas didn't want to give to the poor. He having charge of the money bag, helped himself to it. And he wanted more access to more money because he loved money and power. Jesus responded to Judas and said, you always have the poor with me, with you, but you will not always have me with you. He rebuked Judas in front of everybody. And at that moment, Judas's mind was made up. He had been working towards this already, but he was convinced this Jesus is not my Messiah. He's not my Savior. He's not going to give me the kingdom I want. He's not going to give me the power, the privilege, and the money I'm looking for. I'm done with him. And he went to the Sanhedrin and he said to them, I know you can't arrest him around the crowds because it'll cause an uproar because they all love Jesus. I'm one of his 12. I know when you can get him away from the crowds. What will you give me if I turn him over to you? I hand him over to you. And they said, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Deal done. Judas leaves looking for the moment. I don't know if he came into the upper room presuming this would be the moment or not, but Jesus made sure this was the moment. Commanding him, now is the time. Do the dirty deed of wicked deception and betrayal. What Satan has suggested in verse 2, he now possesses to accomplish. This is how Satan works. He gives ideas. When followed, he jumps in and takes the reins. 
When given a foothold, he enters in, he or his minions, to run and ruin a life. This is exactly what what he has done with Judas. But even Satan's greatest act of treason against the God of heaven, as you know, is under the mighty control of God himself. Jesus commands, what you're doing, do now. Go do it now. Command was not understood by the other 11. I've mentioned that already. They knew uh, that there was a betrayer among them, but they didn't know who it was. Only John heard him say that Judas was him. Even John, for some reason, doesn't understand it all. We don't know why. Judas gets up to leave, and, and they presume that because he has the money bag, he's been sent by Jesus to go buy something for the feast. Some people have made much of this and said, well, this obviously isn't the Passover because they're in the Passover, so why, you know, it can't be the Passover. They're, it's before the, a whole bunch of rigmarole about that. They're eating the Passover, and right after the Passover, there's seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is not uncommon in the midst of the feast to send someone out to get more supplies. So they presume maybe Jesus knew they were going to lack something or miss something, go buy more. They also, on Passover Eve at midnight, would open the temple courtyard and allow the poor and destitute among the Jewish people to come gather in the courtyard because at Passover it was Jewish tradition to save up your money through the year and come give a massive gift, an offering to the Lord, to the poor. And so they presume maybe that's what Judas is going to do. It's late at night. He's going to go take the gift. He's going to go to the temple. He's going to find a poor person and be our emissary of our worship. They have no idea Judas is the betrayer. As all that's happening and spiraling out of human control, Jesus has ordained it to happen. He told us in John 10 that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This will happen on his own terms. He will use the the wickedness and the evil plans and hearts of men, but he will accomplish his purposes and give his life as a ransom for many. Judas is responsible for his evil. He is called the son of condemnation. He is known as the offspring of damnation. He will forever in all of eternity, and I do not say this with any hint of glee, will forever burn in the fires of God's judgment for this wicked, awful, high treason. But God is in complete sovereign control of this whole thing. It is so instructed to us that as a body, God gave us Genesis 37 to read this morning. God does this all the time. We don't plan these things out. We just follow a schedule of our own making. And God weaves together things like this. The betrayal of Joseph thrown into a pit, sold into slavery in Egypt to accomplish the plans of God to take his people to Egypt, enslave them, and rescue them miraculously for his glory as a foreshadowing of our own ransom from our own Egypt, namely our sin. And here we have in our text that happening in the life of Jesus. Act 4, the departure. The departure, verse 30. Judas took the bread, presumably ate it, and then obeyed Jesus and went out. That's not enough, though. John has to tell you more. He has to tell you that it was night. This is not just a time marker. In fact, if it's just a time marker, it doesn't need to be there. There's more going on here. It's it's a rich description of the theological reality. And this has been a, a motif or a theme that John has presented in his gospel over and over again, that of light versus darkness. So he said in the prologue, the word before the word, In verses 7 through 9, that Jesus is coming into the world as the light so that all might believe through him and come to the light of the knowledge of God. Jesus says in chapter 3 that we have the light that has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They didn't like the light because the light exposed their evil deeds. Chapter 8, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 11.10, Jesus says that if anyone 
walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Speaking, obviously, of the spiritual reality. In 1235, he exhorted the crowd that the light was not going to be among them much longer, that they should walk in the light lest the darkness overtake them and consume them. And then in his last address to the unbelieving crowd at the end of chapter 12, 12 verse 46, Jesus says, the light has come into the world so that whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. I've never thought of this before, but could you think that maybe as Jesus says that every time, something about light and darkness, he catches a glimpse of Judas. The son of darkness in his very midst who could walk in the light and be freed from his evil. Judas heard every one of those sayings out of the mouth of Jesus, but now he slips out of the presence of the incarnate light of God into the darkness of the night and a clear picture then of the darkness of his soul. Friend, at this point, he is beyond saving. He has stepped out of the the realm of the grace of God. His fate at this moment is sealed. He has committed himself to go do the deed of betrayal. He is inhabited by Satan, empowering him and moving him along to this dastardly deed. He never again will be in the light. The next time he will see the light is when he leads the soldiers to the side of Jesus and betrays him with a kiss. That is his last interaction with the light. He will then take his own life, which is what darkness always does. It destroys you, body and soul. Take his own life and enter into eternal darkness, what the Gospels call outer darkness. This is a terribly sad, disheartening text. Oh, how I wrestled with the Lord to preach something else. Lord, can we skip to the text on love, 31 to 35. No, stay with the plan. So I wonder, is there anything here for us, beloved? What should we learn? The Lord's appointment for us from this text is for our growth. So what is that? I wanna, as we close, give you three words of application, a word of encouragement, a word of warning, and a word of challenge. First, the word of warning Seems obvious enough, but I must say it. If I'm any kind of preacher, I must exhort you with the truth. Judas is a massive beacon of caution to you. Blindingly so. If you, if you can't see this, you're not paying attention. His life is screaming to you as a follower of Christ. As the best negative example you can find of the quickest path to destroy your life and the lives of others. And what is astounding about Judas is how normal and true he looked on the outside. Penetrating to the inner circle of the followers of Jesus, playing the part, talking the part, acting the part, but internally not in Christ. There have always been Judases in the history of Christianity. There will Always be Judas's until our Lord returns and takes us home. And these things have all been marked. These men and women, these betrayers, have all been marked by the same things. What are they all marked by? Well, first they're marked by wasted opportunities and privileges. Is there anyone more privileged, more opportune than Judas, given more of the grace of God through just the, the station of life? the powerful teaching of his Savior and the glorious displays from the very Son of God in human flesh, and yet he squanders it all, refuses to have his heart captured by the power and the glory of the incarnate Son. He saw Jesus as useful to him. He saw Jesus through the lens of Judas, squandering the opportunity to see Jesus as he is, the Son of God, the glory of God incarnate. You too, friend, have immense opportunities and privileges. You live in an era of church history in which you have been given more than any previous generation of exposure to 
the word of God and to sound explanation of the word of God. The resources available to you are frankly overwhelming and sometimes paralyzing. Where do we start? Where do we begin to understand this text? But this is a tremendous opportunity and privilege to you. You have the joy week in and week out to be part of a church family who takes the word of God seriously, though not perfectly. Who seeks to walk in the light and not in the darkness. Again, not perfectly, but consistently seeking to be empowered by the Spirit of God. You have been entrusted to you shepherds who care for your soul, who love you and pray for you, labor before the Lord on your behalf, asking you, asking God to help you be faithful and fervent before Him. You have every week in your calendar offered to you one opportunity after another to grow in your faith. To consider one another, how to exhort one another to love and good deeds. You have the rhythm of church life. You have the relationships of church life, of brothers and sisters. You have the the joy set before you of the blessed hope of Christ soon return. You have opportunity and privilege which all can combine to make you callous to lull you to sleep to say I'll do it tomorrow I'll get serious in a week I'll worry about my faith then where I'm at is good enough to to plateau, hit cruise control and self-drive the car of faith down the road of life I say to you, let Judas be your warning that there are cliffs ahead. It is a narrow road and a hard way. There are turns that come and cliffs that endanger you. And I beckon you to take advantage of the opportunities presented to you by the grace of God. To lean into those. Do not despise them. Do not think of them as another thing I have to go do. No, you get to be a part of the body of Christ. You get to open your Bible in your language, in an innumerable amount of translations that you can understand. You have the privilege of his grace to have his spirit living in you. And on and on and on and on. So I exhort you to not grow dull, to not fall asleep like Judas did, to not grow comfortable with the privileges and the opportunities but by his kindness to press in and press on. The warning also is seen in these Judases in that they have a love of money. So what we saw in John 12, he seen Mary's expensive worship protest, not because he cares for the poor, but because he loves money. Willing to sell not his savior for 30 pieces of silver, but his own soul for 30 pieces of silver. He loved money so much. He, he cared little for his eternal destiny and cared more about his momentary pocketbook. This is why Paul will say to Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. Beloved, Judases are always marked by a love of money. Thirdly, they're marked by despised grace shown to others. They despise grace shown to others. He was not humbled by the expression of worship by Mary in chapter 12. Rather, he was provoked to hate Mary and hate Jesus. He saw in the grace and mercy shown to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus reasons to be mad at Jesus for not showing him that same kind of grace. This is the mark of the apostate, one who despises the grace of God shown to others, one who who stops celebrating the grace of God shown to them. One who is not daily mindful that apart from the grace of God, they would be entrenched in sin on their way to an eternity apart from God. One who is himself reliant upon himself and his own righteousness, who looks down their haughty nose at sinners saved by grace. That's the mark of every apostate, of every Judas in church history. They hate grace. Fourth mark is that they listened to the devil. Judas descends into hell 
led along the way by listening to the devil. Starting with a suggestion in 13.2, being possessed and controlled by the devil in 15.27. 13.27, excuse me. This is the devil's way. He tempts us with his evil plans. He whispers suggestions into our ears. He tempts us with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. He urges us to run after the world and the things that are in the world. And the path of sinners is always that they give one step to another, to another, to another, down a slippery slope, and pretty soon you're sinking in the mire of your own sinful corruption, unable to save yourself and rescue yourself, knowing that this sin has cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Heed the warning of Judas. Examine your heart. Put to death the deeds of the flesh that are in you. As Paul says in Romans 8, seek to be killing sin. Mortify the deeds of the body. Or it will mortify you. That's the word of warning. Let me give you then a word of encouragement. The first is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all of this. You heard me say it multiple times. But the evil of Judas did not take God by surprise. Rather, he ordained it, planned for it, purposed it, and used it. This is why Jesus said to Judas, not in a resignation tone, well, if you're going to do it, go do it. No, in a commanding tone, what you're going to do, now is the time. This will happen tonight. You will go now and do this very thing. This is the same truth that we find at the end of the Joseph story, Genesis 50 and verse 20, when he, speaking to his brother, says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. The redemption of mankind does not happen apart from the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. So no matter what evil you face today, no matter what betrayal of others has infiltrated your life and thrown you into the pit or caused you the trouble it caused Jesus and the other 11, wherever you're at in that process, just know God is sovereign. And that is not a catch line that we put as a banister over our life and act like it's all going to be okay. No, it's terrible and hard and awful, but this is always true. God is sovereign over all. Therefore, no matter the setbacks, no matter the deception, no matter the sin, all of it is being used by our master and our king a second word of encouragement to you is that truth is our refuge. Did you notice what Jesus does in this text? He's facing his darkest hour and really the darkest hour of human history is right here in John 13 through John 20. As he enters into the darkest hour and has in his presence the darkest man to live in the darkest hour, Judas Iscariot, who is operating by deception whose whole life is a lie to him and to others. What does Jesus do? Did you catch it? He repeatedly speaks truth. Verse 16, he spoke truth. Truly, truly. Verse 18, this scripture is fulfilled. Verse 20, truly, truly. Verse 21, truly, truly, I say to you. In the face of the deception of the world, the troubling and perplexing reality of a world gone amok, betraying the truth of, of the revelation of God that should be so obvious you can't deny it. You know, simple things like the design of God in biology. Stuff that people have upheld in human history until now. We see our world running amok with this stuff, lies abounding, hypocrisy the culture of all things, we must be people of the truth. Like Jesus, take refuge in the word of truth. Let the betrayal of another, let the movement of our culture away from Christian truth, let the descent of formerly solid ministries into error and false teaching, let all of that press and compel you to be immersed in the truth. Care less about what Fox News says about what's happening in Washington, D.C. and care more about what God's word says about what should be happening in your living room. 
press in to the truth. Be people of the truth. Take refuge in it. And lastly, a word of challenge. Simply, this is expect the expected. This is Satan's modus operandi. This is what he always does. He dresses himself up as angels of light. He sends his messengers clothed as messengers of light. He penetrates and infiltrates the work of Christ. He sows tares among the wheat. This is what Satan does. Therefore, we should expect this to be the reality in our experience. So much to say here. We need not hold everyone in suspicion, refusing to build relationships of love and trust, expecting everyone to fall away but me. That is not the teaching of Scripture either. But we ought be men and people who are so immersed in truth, so ready to build the discipline of spiritual discernment that we know truth versus error. We can pick it out in one another. and We should be teachable enough that when someone hears it in us, we listen, we reason together, we run to the word together. We humbly submit to the truth in all of its glory. So cling to the truth and take refuge in the truth and rely upon the grace of God and, and know that truth will expose error. The light will make known the darkness. That's what happened in the upper room. So we need to worry about sniffing out who among us is going to be the next apostate. What we need to do is double down on the truth. Be people of the light and being people of the light, those who are of the darkness will be exposed and expunged. So much so that the Apostle John will say in 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us because they were not of us. They were not in the light. They couldn't handle it anymore. They left. Let's be people of truth and light. Know that all of this must then be Christ's work in us. In just a few hours, these 11 disciples, hearing the heart and mind of Jesus, will see things go sideways in their opinion. See Jesus arrested, tried, mocked, beaten, hung on a cross. And when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. So much so that the chief apostle, Peter, will himself say three different times, I do not know that man. So you must know, you, you are not perfect you will fall, you will be deceived, you will walk in the dark occasionally. But when you fall, like Peter, fall forward, not back. Judas fell back away from the Lord. Brother or sister, if you're fallen today, allow the grace and mercy of God to pick you up and move you forward. He must do this. We cannot. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the truth of your word. Help us to be children of the light, walking in this glorious light. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.